Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs>Welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. And today, if you haven't already guessed, we'll be talking about two films featuring characters from the pulp era of the 1930s, The Shadow and The Phantom, both of which were incredibly influential in the creation of comic book superheroes and, in particular... Batman. Um, I want to say from the outset that I am a huge Shadow fan and have been for a very long time. Uh, when I was a kid, in order to keep me quiet on long car trips, my dad gave me a Walkman with some of the old Shadow radio shows on cassette. And, you know, I just listened to those over and over again. So when they made the Shadow movie and it was coming out in the summer of 94, I was one of the people most excited. I was first in line for the Shadow movie, and I realized that line wasn't as long as I might have thought. Uh, Rob, do you have any memories of The Shadow growing up? Absolutely. I, too, listened to The Shadow serials on tape. I think it was a lot of The Shadow and a lot of The Green Hornet. Yeah, I had a lot and, of Green uh, Hornet, too. Oh, yeah. And the uh, the DC comics that were in the 1980s leading into the 90s as well. I remember Shadow Strikes was one. Uh, earlier, they had some of the miniseries in the 80s that yep. kind of resurrected the character before that they did they did um and uh in 1994 uh they uh you know inspired by the success of batman and studios looking for you know some kind of batman-esque character uh they uh they universal went with the shadow now the shadow has a a kind of complicated history on radio and in pulp literature uh, the character started as the mysterious host of the detective story hour in 1930 uh, but he was just the host He was of this mystery anthology. And soon afterwards, Street and Smith Publications hired Walter B. Gibson to write stories about this character, which were then first published in 1931. Uh, the Shadow was a detective, he was a vigilante, and he was a master of disguise whose true identity was at least initially unknown even to the many agents in his employ. Uh, he is one of the prototypes for the modern superhero and in particular strong influence on Batman. Uh, in 1937, The Shadow moved back to radio show, but this time as a show focusing on his adventures. And the show ran on the Mutual Broadcasting Network from 1937 to 1954, producing 677 episodes. As well, the first actor to play The Shadow in this series was none other than Orson Welles. The Shadow has a supernatural ability to cloud men's minds, which would render him invisible. Uh, and that served to exodite storytelling for a half-hour radio drama. This was a, this was a power that was, uh, was, was given to him in the radio show, but not necessarily in the pulp. Um, on radio, Shadow's identity was Lamont Cranston, a wealthy young man about town. Uh, the character of Margot Lane, who was also featured in the movie, The Shadow's assistant and implied lover, uh, was the creation of the radio show as well. Um, in 1994, the Shadow film combined both the pulp and the radio versions of the character uh, and tells the story of how Lamont Cranston, who is, uh, in, you know, after World War I, is in China and is sort of an opium warlord in China and gets recruited by uh, a holy man uh, 
who to uh, to redeem himself and teaches him the arts of uh, of mysticism and how to cloud men's minds and sends him back to New York City uh, to do battle with the forces of evil. Uh, this uh, the movie went into development in the early '80s. Robert Zemeckis was hired at one point to direct. Sam Raimi tried to pitch a version of it, but was didn't get it, and he later went on to make Darkman. Uh, and the the movie was written by eventually was was made by uh, Russell Mulcahy, who directed Highlander. It was also written by David Kep, uh, who had done Jurassic Park and would later do Mission Impossible and the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Uh, Rob, what are your thoughts on The Shadow? The Shadow is interesting. Because you really start to see kind of some bridges between eras. Um, Looking at Tim Burton's Batman, which kicked off this whole trend, we had talked about how many different elements were combined in that movie, but some backward-looking and some forward-looking, and even the the stuff from the past was combined in a way that it was not the past. Mm -hmm. The Shadow, again, continues our tradition of... (laughs) the lesson being learned that you should have a hero from the thirties and you should set the movie in the thirties. Right. That being said, the shadow does start to combine other elements. I feel the movie, Mm -hmm. um, you, you get a very heavy film noir influence and some other things, but it does combine mostly influences from the past. The one exception, Mm -hmm. uh, and a little, a little less so in the shadow than in, the film The Phantom that we'll be talking about later, it also looks to, hey, Batman, a character from the 30s, was successful. Some of these other ones that followed that were period movies were not as successful. Was there possibly any movie set in the past that was a monster hit? Oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so you see some of those elements in this movie but a lot of them in in the next one that we'll be talking about. Absolutely, yeah. The the Phantom definitely has a heavy Raiders of the Lost Ark influence. Uh, The Shadow has an amazing cast. Uh, Alec Baldwin plays Lamont Cranston, Penelope Ann Miller, John Lone from The Last Emperor. It's got Peter Boyle, it's got Tim Curry, it's got Ian McKellen before Ian McKellen was a household name because of of, uh, Magneto and Gandalf. Uh, It's got Jonathan Winters and James Hong and Max Wright, the dad from ALF. It's got Ethan Phillips from Star Trek Voyager. And as the Shadow's communication man is theater director Andre Gregory, who was, of course, the, the, the title role in My Dinner with Andre. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing cast um, for this movie. It's, a, it's got costumes by Bob Ringwood, who had done Batman. It's got a great Jerry Goldsmith score. Um, and it's, it's, it's visually terrific. It's... I, to me, I would say that the shadow is to Batman, to Tim Burton's Batman, what uh, Flash Gordon was to Star Wars. It's this kind of retro, uh, but at the same time, it, 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 has a, it has an odd tone to it, slightly, you know, kind of walking the line between camp and seriousness. Uh, I don't know if it's full camp, but it's, uh, it plays it with a straight face, I think. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I, I like the film so much. Absolutely. It actually, this is the first time I saw the film. It actually took me a lot longer than I would care to admit to realize how much humor was happening in the film because it is playing it so straight. I mean, uh, casting Jonathan Winters as your police commissioner should have tipped me off had I been uh, paying more attention and thinking, but it didn't. But I, I don't think it goes full camp. This movie does seem to be a the beginning of the end of this cycle 
because of the humor, while all of the films had their own version of humor, which we talked about, um, this one in particular, as far as I can see in our cycle, is the first one where the humor is based around it knowingly being a superhero movie. Yeah. But it's not full camp and it's not parody because it is mostly just a straight superhero movie. Um, but there are moments, um, like one of them, where you have the characters of Lamont Cranston and Margot Lane, and they stop in the street to have a discussion while they're crossing yes. the street in New York. And this is something that happens in movies all the time, especially, uh, you know, ones that are a little more set bound or backlot bound. Except this one takes the point to have a car have to stop as it's turning and then kind of honk and yell and at them. honk its they, horn yeah the characters don't even notice or acknowledge this at all it's it's for us the audience uh and it ha- this movie has little moments like that what i love about that scene i know the i know the one you're talking about the scene and it, it, it you know, lamont asks margot to go investigate something while he's gonna go and check something else out so they're gonna go in separate ways and it's where he says you know uh, the, the character played by Tim Curry, Farley Claymore. Claymore is going to get a visit from the shadow, which is exactly how they would say things on the old radio show, because it was, you know, it had it, that that dialogue from that scene in the street could have been lifted from the 1930s radio show. And they really were aware of of the roots of the character. Now, most people weren't because it was, you know, here we are in 1994, or we were in 1994, uh, you know, with a a radio show from the 1930s. And so I don't think that necessarily resonated. uh, Well, it resonated with me because I was a big fan of the show. And this is why I was not well suited to be a teenager in the 1990s, because I was the kid who was really into the shadow. And you know, sort of set me apart from the people that I I uh, I, I I knew. You know, um, and this one it even makes fun of the fact that our hero is a tortured hero, much yes. like Bruce Wayne and Batman. There's the uh, the dream sequence when oh, yes. Lamont has a kind of uh, what a South Seas esque dream where he's imagining Margot Lane being very sexy with him. And then he rips off his face yes. in the dream. And somebody else's face is underneath. And then when he actually talks about this with Margot and explains what the dream was, her response is, you have problems. And I'm, his response I'm aware is, of that. Yeah, yeah, he says that he knows. And so you can't really get more self-aware. So this is not really the, it's not the blazing saddles of this superhero cycle, but it might be the scream of this yeah. superhero cycle. Oh yeah, that's a, I like that. I like that analogy. That's yeah, it's it does have that awareness and you feel that like okay, we're entering sort of the later stage of this um of this particular cycle of films. Um it's interesting that the movie also came along, you know, when we started with Batman, you were very firmly in the era of practical effects, matte paintings, model work, and what you see over the course from 1989 with Batman to to where we're going to end, um, you see the transition into digital effects. And and The Shadow is a movie that comes right at the middle of that transition. You still have some amazing practical effects, but you have some other digital effects that are just kind of coming into their own. And some of those digital effects, I know normally people like to complain, especially about the early transition, 
some of the digital effects they use for the shadow fighting when he is clouding men's minds, I actually really, really like. Yeah. Um, essentially, uh, when the shadow, there's one scene, I think on the bridge, it might be one of the first big uh, action sequences where he, uh, Lamont, is the shadow fighting crime. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of, he is a swirling cloud where you get these little glimpses of his face or his, his fists coming out, but never the full body and never, um, always a little transparent, even in what you're seeing of his body. And I don't know, it just looks cool to me. Oh, I, I agree. There's a, there's a scene later where, uh, I mean, this is a movie that has some stuff that is is just absolutely over the top. You have, you know, Mongol warriors walking around the streets of New York and nobody really notices. Uh, so there's there's one point where, um, you know, one of the, the, the Mongol warriors fires two crossbow bolts into his shoulders and clearly gets his cape and he kind of you know, appears out of the shadow on the wall and leaving the cape behind uh, pinned to the wall from the crossbow bolts. Um, And um, the reason there are Mongol warriors in New York is because the villain, Shawan Khan, who is a descendant of Genghis Khan, who has uh, knowledge of Lamont Cranston as the opium warlord back in Tibet and has come here specifically thinking he would team up with him uh, but finding that Lamont is um, reformed, he now is just going to take over the world on his own and take out Lamont and the Shadow. And his plot involves getting parts from scientists. Uh, the one, what, Dr. Reinhardt, played by uh, Ian, Ian McKellen. McKellen. And the other uh, is, uh, oh my goodness, played by Tim Curry. It's Farley Claymore. Farley yeah. Claymore. Um, and they each have made a different thing needed for this bomb, which essentially be- is described as an atomic bomb. Yes, it is an early atomic bomb. And the reason I bring this up is because this is, puts the film at the intersection of two different trends. One, I feel, is uh, also specific to the 90s, unrelated to the Batman superhero trend. And that is the post-Soviet Union breakup Nukes on the Loose movie. Right. That was almost like a little action subgenre um, for quite a while. Sure. Broken Arrow, The Peacemaker, to name a few. And so it kind of is intersecting because all that's in the air at this time, too. Absolutely. The other thing is a longer term trend, which I uh, this is just something totally not 100 percent backed up by data, but a feeling I get from seeing a lot of movies which is that post-World War II, there were two countries in particular that wind up making a lot of films about nuclear bombs. Loose news. Japan and the United States. Obviously, oh, one of those yeah. countries dropped the bomb, and yeah. one of those com- countries had the bomb dropped on them. The Japanese films, in general, all deal with the bomb has been dropped, what happens after? And this you would include Godzilla. movies like... Godzilla and Rodan and, and you know, what are, what are the outcomes of it? Yes. But all the way up to Akira. Sure. I, you know, and beyond. Absolutely. I just, I do not have an exhaustive knowledge. The United States films, in general, deal with, oh no, someone wants to drop the bomb on us. Right. Um, which is the classic, you are most afraid of that which you have done, uh, <laughs> pop psychology. And this, this film is no exception. Uh, goes right into that trend. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, that, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, and, and this is 
again, this is a movie where, you know, Ian McKellen is nearly... The, the bomb that they build is this spherical device, which enables it to roll down hallways of, you know, of this this hotel that uh, that Shawan Khan has taken over and made his base. So, I mean, this is a movie where Ian McKellen is nearly run over by an atomic bomb, which to me is just extraordinary. Uh, it's, you know, it's... It, it, the movie has got an absolutely furious sincerity. Like, it, it, it plays these things that are totally over the top, and, and, but it does so with a kind of just absolute seriousness. Uh, it never, it's never playing it like, you know, it's never doing the naked gun thing. It's never doing the Blazing Saddles thing. Oh, where no. It's, it's, it is, it's playing it straight, but it knows that it's it's these things are over the top. I wanted to talk a couple of things I wanted to talk about with the sort of the the transition from uh, some of the effects in this film. There's there's a the shadow rather than wearing a mask, he changes his face so uh, he he's unrecognizable, and he does this thing where the, this digital effect where the the face changes into this sort of not real version of Alec Baldwin, which actually looks kind of like Daniel Baldwin, to be perfectly honest. And and the shadow face is a, a particularly odd effect that I, I that sticks in my mind. Um, Absolutely. It I actually it reminded me of a toned down version of Dick Tracy makeup. Yes. In that way. Uh, because it is it is unreal, but it is not nearly as unreal as the Dick Tracy makeup. And you, uh, in part, I guess you don't have as much face to cover. It's really the forehead, the eyes, and the nose, and then everything right. else is kind of covered by that scarf. Yeah, the shadow wears a red scarf over his mouth. That, and this is from the the covers of the pulp novels as well as uh, any previous versions. Usually, the artwork has a has a red scarf covering his mouth. Um, I gotta say that I thought Alec Baldwin was really good in this movie. Like he, 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 again, sort of, it's a movie kind of well-suited for him. And I thought Penelope Ann Miller as well, the two of them have a great chemistry and the relationship in the second half is really interesting. Um, Alec Baldwin in particular, you need someone with a, a magnificent voice to do the shadow and they got it, but he's also a great Lamont Cranston, uh, kind of as the, uh, the charming, slightly full of himself, um, you know, essentially millionaire playboy. It's it's very kind of proto Bruce Wayne. But the relationship, as you were saying, between Lamont and Margot is fantastic, and they do have a lot of great moments. She is not a shrinking violet by any stretch no. of the imagination. She can also hear thoughts. At one point, Lamont Cranston is trying to get away from Margot um, because I think he has to run and go help. Uh, you know, there's some crime going on. He has to go fight. And he tries to cloud her mind because he has the ability to cloud men's minds, but she is no man and he cannot cloud <laughs> her mind. Although later on, Shawan Khan, with the help of the llama's cigarette billboard, can cloud her mind yes. and uh, affect her because uh, presumably he has uh, maybe some tricks up his sleeve that Lamont does not. Right, he might be even slightly better at this technique than uh, than Lamont, and you know, giving him uh, have an advantage. Um, one of the things about the movie, it, it um, it's got the movie has got style to burn. I mean, it, it you know the 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 production design is terrific. There's this amazing sequence where you fo- the shadow sends his messages 
through New York to his agents, and the Shadow has a has a, a vast array of agents through pneumatic tubes, and we get to oh, see that one of so cool. Oh my God! I just Rob, I love pneumatic tubes. I think it's from oh, yes. when I was a kid, and my dad would take me to the bank, and he'd always go to the outer one where you had the pneumatic tube goes up. Uh, if there's any kids younger, they're like, what are you talking about, old man? But I'm telling you, pneumatic tubes are the coolest. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Um, it, uh, and, and this movie, you know, uses them to great effect. Um you know, there's the the end sequence. There's an end sequence. Well, first of all, we should mention that uh, Russell Mulcahy directed this movie, and I think directed it. I think it's just got so much style, uh, and he directed the heck out of it. Um, also directed the original Highlander, which is one of my favorite movies. And if you know Highlander, uh, Highlander is a movie with a lot of broken glass, a lot of breaking windows, a lot of... And we see this again at, at the climax of this movie, which takes place in a kind of hall of mirrors where you get an enormous amount of, of glass being broken. And, um, you know, that's I, I feel like that's a Russell Mulcahy trademark, and I think it's fantastic. Um, an interesting note is that that sequence uh, at the end with the hall of mirrors is not as long as it was originally intended because the Hall of Mirrors set was destroyed in the North Northridge earthquake of 1994. And so they weren't able to do, they weren't able to rebuild it fully and they weren't able to do as complex a scene. Uh, so it kind of is a, is a sort of truncated scene, uh, unfortunately, but, um, but it's, it's, still, it's still effective. Oh, absolutely. And uh, as, a, as a big Bruce Lee fan, I... Uh... I think a little bit of an homage to Enter the Dragon there. It has got to be. And it, it also makes sense from the thematic standpoint, though, in this instance. I think this is the first villain in this cycle of superhero movies where our villain is the mirror of Ooh. our hero. And so they they both got their powers from the same tolku studying. Um, they were both... Um, kind of evil crime warlords one of them went on the straight and narrow after being trained and getting the spirituality the other did not and instead murdered the tolku their um their teacher and then is now trying to take over and have world domination so you get that um and one of them in the beginning the evil is stronger and by the end you get the um the hero having learned through the baptism by fire of facing his shadow self shadow self um and then uh he comes through stronger and can save the day absolutely Uh, i think that's uh, that's absolutely right um you know in some ways i think this is uh uh you know it's in the movie that 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 is is not unlike the rocketeer especially in its uh you know the time frame but it's really kind of it's a much weirder movie than the rocketeer it's more (laughs) it is it's just more fundamentally strange and i think that's one of the reasons i have uh, such a deep abiding love for the shadow and have now for for of quite a long time. Uh, it also featured a great song called Original Sin, written by Jim Steinman, who had of course wrote much uh, many songs for Meatloaf, including the classic Bat Out of Hell album, as well as t- as well as um, uh, the Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Uh, and I think that this song is better than any song in in any Batman movie. It is. Fantastic, and uh, you know, and honestly, the song itself is very much in keeping with the movie. Like, it, it the song is very representative of this movie because it's so it's over the top. It has got some very d- 
you know, very dramatic shifts within the song and what type of song it is. But I'm just like, I got, I got to download this so I can listen to it in the car. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it feels like a movie almost that, that was inevitably destined to be a cult classic. You know, this was just the, the, you know, we talked last week about the crow and how the crow was very much, um, appealed to, to that moment of 1994. It's like, it's, it's super nineties. Well, the shadow came out about six weeks after the crow and it didn't do very well at the box office. Again, I, I was first in line, but I, I, you know, I now realize that I might've been one of the few in line, but, um, but you know, it, it, it's a movie that, that just seemed inevitably was not going to find its audience at the time. And I think in years since has started to, uh, to, to become a cult classic. And if we can push that further along, because I just, I think it's, uh, I think it's terrific. I think it's, it's just, it's got a lot of, just got a lot of fun to it. And it's, uh, it's crazy. You know, it's not, uh, it's not the norm. Not at all. Although the one the one trend that I think it was on point with in that era was split diopter shots. Yes. Uh, I never really realized that this this early to mid nineties period was a split diopter renaissance. There's a couple of them in this. Um, yes, so I'm there just are. Calling it out for you all. Um, I wanted to mention that this is one of the uh, first movies where the villain uh, actually does not die, let alone fall from a great height, but but in fact survives. And, uh, you know, again, watch the movie. I highly encourage it. It is really, really good. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, it, it, it appeals to a certain, you know, there's a certain place where it's, 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 both, uh, it's both ridiculous and sincere, and, and it, it appeals to me greatly. So um, if you want to see a flying dagger that tries to bite your hand because it has a face on it, you need to see the shadow. Yes. That is absolutely the case. Um, now, two years after The Shadow came out, um, it, we have the other movie we're going to talk about today, which is The Phantom. Uh, now, The Phantom first appeared in, in newspaper strips in 1936. It's created by Lee Falk and published by King Features Syndicate, um, it, who also did Flash Gordon. The, 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 they were the, the company behind Flash Gordon and Mandrake the Magician. And like the Shadow, he was a prototype for the comic book superheroes that would emerge in the years to follow. Uh, based in the fictional African country of Bengala, the Phantom is really Kit Walker, the most recent in a long line of Phantoms who have been battling evil since the 16th century. And the mantle is passed down from father to son, although in, in the, the comic strips, occasionally to daughter. And as a consequence, the local legends think the Phantom is immortal, and he is referred to as the Ghost Who Walks. It's, uh, I think, a real flex on the part of the Phantom film to explain all of what you did, Chris, after the movie has ended. <laughs> yes, yes. For whatever yeah. reason, you even get a teaser that kind of explains some of it because you see... Uh, the original boy on the pirate or on the ship uh and then the pirates attack and he washes up on shore and is taken in uh and presumably becomes the first phantom although i think it cuts out before that point yeah um but it, you really get none of the rest of what chris just said until after everything's been solved right before the right before the end credits yeah, it's like the final scene where they're in the in the tomb of phantoms, and you can see that uh, you know there's all the other ones that are are are, are buried in that, that chamber, and you know he explains the whole thing, 
And it is literally like the last scene of the movie, and it is the strangest thing. Um, the shadow, I mean, the, the, sorry, the shadow's still on the shadow. The Phantom is uh, is kind of the first legacy superhero, something we've seen in in more modern times where there have been multiple Robins, there have been multiple Flashes, and you have a mantle that is passed from one person to another. And the the, the Phantom is probably the per, the first example of that, uh, and kind of. To put it this way, the, the Phantom is if you combine the Shadow and Tarzan, if you combine sort of what was the emerging trend of the masked crime fighter with the jungle hero, which was a very popular type of character in the, the first half of the 20th century, uh, you would find the Phantom. And that's, uh, you know, he's while an American creation, he was a very popular overseas, in particular in Europe and Australia. Um uh, at one point, Sergio Leone was actually going to talk about directing a Phantom movie, which would have been amazing. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That, well, that would have been something to see. Apparently, the Phantom was really big in Italy. Italy and the Nordic countries uh, were, were places where the Phantom was really, really popular. Interesting. Because I, I would say this, the Shadow a little bit, um, the Phantom a lot. There is something about coming from the time period that they sprang from where parts of the premise that are baked in, shall we say, come from a much different era. Yes. And I would say that there is, um, at best, a lot of colonialism inherent in the premise of the, sh- uh, excuse me, the Phantom. A little bit in the shadow with the training, but but it's far, far less. What's interesting is the the question to me becomes, how could you possibly do something like the Phantom in even in 94, but especially in the modern context? And I, I think what happened is Marvel Comics essentially in the 60s has their own version of the Phantom where they correct a lot of the original sins of the premise, would you say, in having Black Panther? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I that may be the answer of how do you do this kind of hero now? And it's... You, you do it a much, much different way. Um, oh, yeah. I, I grew That's... up loving both the Phantom and Black Panther um, when I was a kid uh, with comics and, and things of that nature. And the, the Phantom, I think, was often more of a comic strip. Yes. Yeah. He So he predated newspaper strips and sort of predated. There have been Phantom comic books, to be sure. But the character originated in the newspaper strips that sort of predated the comic book by a couple of years. The early comic books being uh, collected newspaper strips uh, that they then, you know, bundled up and sold. And then shortly thereafter, they just said, oh, well, if we can make money uh, collecting up newspaper strips, we can then, you know, create original material, charge a little more for it. And that's... That's how, you know, that's how the comic book is born. Um, this movie was written by Jeffrey Bohm, who did, uh, did The Dead Zone. He did Inner Space. He did The Lost Boys. And he did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, and he was a, it was directed by Simon Windsor. Originally, Joe Dante was scheduled to direct. And uh, he wanted to do a slightly more tongue-in-cheek interpretation. But he left the project. He's still a, an executive producer. And uh, Simon Windsor, the director of uh, Quigley Down Under, and Free Willy came on and uh, took a more straightforward approach. And I think it's telling, as you said, that the writer had written Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade because one has the feeling that the producers may have hired him specifically because of that credit with, I think, how much they were incorporating that action-adventure, uh, old, old-time old serial feel to it. 
that opening scene, there's an opening sequence of the film where you have a truck and a, and a rope bridge. Um, and, you know, it's a question of eventually the truck is going to fall off this rope bridge because you know it, that's what's going to happen. If you have a truck and a rope bridge, it's going to fall. It's Chekhov's rope bridge. And, um, and you know, it's it's it feels like it's straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. It absolutely, the fact that it's in daylight, you know, so much of Indiana Jones action takes place in the day and, you know, kind of very different from some of the, you know, Batman or the, or the Shadow, which are largely nighttime affairs. Something nice about that sequence uh, for me is that the Indiana Jones-esque character is Quill, who's yeah. pa- played by uh, what James Remar. James Remar. And Quill is presented as the swashbuckling adventure at first, um, but he's got a little harder edge. The first moment that you know for sure he's not the hero, besides the poster telling you that the Phantom is the hero, uh, is that... They have a young boy with them who's helping them navigate the jungle. And when they have to cross that shaky rope bridge with their giant truck, you cut to all of the the grown men in this uh, (laughs) treasure-seeking party are across the bridge. They've crossed on foot. And the young boy is being forced to drive the truck across the rope bridge. It's such a, a nice visual moment of showing me who the bad guy is. And I think, uh, I mean... I don't know that it's subtle, but a, a relatively subtle for this kind of thing way without it just being ma ha ha, I'm the villain. Yes, yes. Uh, the fandom is portrayed by Billy Zane, who a year later would uh, would star in one of the uh, most successful movies of all time, Titanic. Um, and it features a cast that includes Treat Williams. Uh, it includes... Oh, he Christine. is fantastic as Mr. Yeah, Drax. I love he is really Treat great. Williams in this movie. No, Treat Williams is terrific as as an over-the-top industrialist who is searching for the the secret of the uh, the skulls of Tuganda, which are these three skulls, one of gold, one of silver, and one of jade. And when you bring them together, there is some kind of never-quite-fully-described power, which is one of my issues with the movie, is that where Indiana Jones does a great job of creating or 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 using mythology to um, you know to, to 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 make the 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 stakes clear, I never really understood what the skulls of Taganda were were gonna do when you when you brought them together. Like it it felt like oh well there are these skulls and then and the, and they're powerful when you brought them together, but I never quite understood. Uh, what that meant they show it on the small scale but they never give us what the earth shattering scale would be Um, because i think we do see some it melts some individual people down but that's much later on in the film Um, exactly uh the other the other person uh who is featured in this movie in a supporting role is Catherine zeta jones as sala the leader of a female band of sky pirates and i'll tell you it's one of those things that when as soon as Catherine Zeta-Jones appears on screen, this was 1996, so she hadn't done some of the bigger movies that she would go on and do, but uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones is an instant star as soon as as she appears on screen. And and one of the things that, the, that one of the, I think, issues with the film is you have, you know, she overshadows some of the other characters because she's so dynamic and interesting uh, as soon as she appears. It keeps alive the pirate tradition of the, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the Phantoms, the original Phantoms origin, and then continuing it into the modern era because the, uh, and also in this film, the original set of pirates who 
created the Phantom do play into this movie. Uh, the businessman, the American tycoon Drax, is looking for the skulls and winds up learning that they are back in yeah. Africa at the island where the Phantom is and that somehow that original gang of pirates um, what is Sang it? Brotherhood. Sang Brotherhood. That they are uh, involved and or may have some of the missing skulls. And so it all kind of comes together with the uh, the old villain from the past and the modern villain all coming to a head in Act 3. And it's interesting. You bring in Kari Hirayuka Tagawa in the third act as the leader of the Sang Brotherhood. And I, and I again, I, as soon as he appeared on screen, I'm like, this guy is fantastic. Um, I, I where has he been the whole movie? And he, he really just appears for the last 15 minutes. I, I kept thinking that the Sang Brotherhood was was sort of tangential to the story. And in my head, I kept imagining a different version where by the 20th century, it had evolved into global corporation with a raw, wide variety of nefarious interests. But that really wasn't the direction they went. I kind of, that was the, the movie that was sort of playing out in my head as I was watching. I'm like, oh, there's a, there's even a better version of Phantom out there. And, uh, you know, that, that I, I think that, that it could be done. This movie in general has a lot of the things that it's combining, frankly, is almost a blueprint for what winds up happening with uh, the 1999 The Mummy, the Stephen yeah. Summers film. Yes. Which uh, I love, and I love that that version of The Mummy. It is much more in the vein of a swashbuckling Raiders of the Lost Ark style adventure than it is like the old Universal horror movie. Right. Here, the same impulses here, uh, whatever, five years earlier. Yeah. And it's just some of it clicks and some of it doesn't, but they're, they're rowing in that direction and it's just, maybe it's not the right time. I'm not sure. Part of it, I think is that you're having, if you're going for that swashbuckling adventure feel, which is a good impulse, the phantom costume alone, just kind of, there's a visual discontinuity because yeah. we have not been trained to expect that kind of costumed superhero look in this kind of movie whereas in the mummy later on he's just dressed like a swashbuckling adventure hero he's not wearing right. the purple suit um yeah the anyway. phantom wears a skin tight purple suit that covers nearly his whole body except for his face and i will say that it's probably one of the most comics accurate costumes to appear on film to this point i mean now we with uh with some of the marvel and dc films we've become accustomed to more comics accurate costumes but at the time this was this was his you know the phantom leapt right off of the of the comic strip page i think this shows a little bit to the detriment of the film i think doing something else just having it be the skin tight suit is kind of part of why that visual discontinuity is there because the film is one thing but the suit is kind of another and they just yeah for whatever for whatever reason for me it just doesn't it just doesn't hit me together though i will say billy zane is in incredible shape in this movie my god yes. there is nowhere to hide in that suit and he does not need to he is just jacked no no he is he is in good shape uh he he apparently lobbied very hard to play this role and 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 worked out uh you know an incredible and he he 
there is no there is no unlike the 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 Batman or or the Flash we talked about a couple weeks ago. There's no uh, there's no rubberized abs here. That that is all Billy Zane, and you know God God bless him. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the again one of the other problems I have with 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 the film is that there's no arc for Kit Walker at all. Kit Walker starts that movie and ends the movie, and it is just the same. And and there's no development for him. And it's interesting because being that it's a family. You know, essentially a family title that is passed down, um, you'd think that someone who is forced to take on the mantle uh, of, 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 of the Phantom would have those second thoughts of, oh, is this what I want to be doing? Do I want to be living in a, in a, in a cave in the jungle uh, and, and, and fighting pirates? Or would I rather be in, you know, uh, New York City of the 1930s and, and you know, uh, go and have drinks at the Cobalt Club? But, um, you know, he, they never seem to have that. Um, th- he doesn't seem to have those, those second thoughts. Uh, even those things where it's like, yeah, you know, at the end he embraces what he, what he, he is. Uh, it just seems like there's a natural arc. Um, you know, other other characters have have struggled with things. He doesn't seem to struggle with anything. And I actually think that what I found was that they are treating, unlike every film that has come before in the su- superhero cycle, they are taking a singular character, but they are treating the other characters in the film almost like a team like the Avengers where we're following them. So we go off and we follow Diana for a little bit. Yeah. Who is, uh, who's the daughter of the newspaper tycoon. And we're with the newspaper tycoon for a little bit. He, he is in New York um, and he's very suspicious of what Drax the businessman is doing and is kind of investigating that. Um, Diana has come back from a, um, what the Yukon, I believe we so yes. it's established that she is her own adventurer very early. And then, when the businessman, uh, when Drax uh, causes trouble in New York, the uh, the newspaper tycoon, her her uncle, I believe. I believe that's uh, correct, yeah. Yeah, and he can't go on the trip to uh, Africa to track down what, what Drax is doing, so she goes in his stead. And in that way, it's, it's nice in that it does make Diana a lot more active. It makes other people more active in the film. But it comes at a cost of right. there are fewer kit scenes, there are fewer phantom scenes, and not not from the action standpoint, but from the character development standpoint. Uh, like yeah. you said, he begins and ends the film very much in the same place outside of now having made a connection with Diana. He's he's the most smiley superhero of this era. Like he is he is grinning all the way through this movie, and and he's just he is he is a upbeat. Uh, the Phantom is an upbeat guy. Like that's, that's just, that's all there is to that. Uh, did you, I don't know if you noticed, there's a chase in the, in the second act where they're, they're chased through New York and there's, they get, uh, go through the New York zoo. And I very much recognized <laughs> it as the Los Angeles zoo, the old Los Angeles zoo in Griffith park. I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, if you, if you live in Los Angeles, you'll notice that, uh, this was actually one of the first movies. They shot some of it in LA, uh, some of it on location, but, uh, a lot of it was shot in Australia at sound stages uh, in Australia. And it was one of the first big Hollywood movies to do a lot of its uh, stage work uh, in, in, in Australia, like w- where the Matrix would come a couple of years later and then Mission Impossible 2. And, and that became a kind of common thing. This was one of the first to, uh, big Hollywood movies to, uh, to sort of uh, put its roots down in Australia. So uh, that's a, a, a notable thing. Um, 
I also want to point out Patrick McGowan plays the the previous <laughs> Phantom, uh, who was of course television's The Prisoner, uh, and you know which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and one of my favorite actors. He was older, obviously, when he was in The Phantom. Uh, although on the gravestone at the end, uh, if you read the the, the dates. Uh, there's the suggestion that that Patrick McGowan's Phantom was 40 when he was killed. And I'm like, uh, I love Patrick McGowan, but he was definitely not 40 when he made this movie. And uh, and maybe his ghost's age is a little bit, I don't know. Um, and that, that relationship is interesting. We don't get a, a ton of it. But where Kit talks to the ghost of, yeah. uh, of, the, of the old Phantom, Patrick, played by Patrick McGowan. And it's... In the beginning, you don't necessarily know that it's a ghost. You think that it might be the retired guy who's there with him. And then when other characters enter and we realize for certain he was not talking to a corporeal person. And it's it's just kind of left out there that that is there some sort of psychic connection? Is it kind of a mental representation? I, I think probably leaning towards psychic connection. It's I just point that out because the talking to the spirit of a dead relative as a superhero thing will come in with one of our films later down the road. Yes. Uh, and you also see it again in, uh, in, in uh, black Panther, uh, you know, has a, a very similar thing when he, you know, he, he goes and he has those moments where he speaks to his father, um, you know, in the, in the next world um, at the tree. Um, yeah, it's, I, I had never really made the connection between the Phantom and Black Panther before, that Black Panther is, in a sense, a decolonialized Phantom, which uh, is is fantastic. Um, and it brings up, both of these movies bring up uh, sort of the issue, because they were, both of both these characters, the Shadow and the Phantom, were characters that very much informed the character of Batman. And I think there's a thing that happens when... Um, you have a character or a concept that is sort of updated for modern audiences. And then as a response, someone goes back to try and draw from the source material. So it, it, we're, uh, when we finish uh, our, our examination of the movies that followed Batman, uh, we're going to do uh, some of the movies that followed Star Wars. Get Me Another Star Wars will be our next series. And I think it's particularly interesting that you see adaptations of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon in the wake of Star Wars, which were which was a movie very much informed by Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. I think the same thing is here. But part of the problem you run into is that, you know, another another film has already gotten to a lot of the meat of the material. You know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the tropes that would be un- that were unique when the Phantom or the Shadow uh, first came into existence, have now been sort of well-mined by characters that came in their wake. So it, it becomes harder to do that adaptation and have it feel fresh. And there is a tendency, I think, to... If there were ideas in the older material that were, shall we say, of their time and might not be so appropriate for a modern audience and a modern way of thinking, there is often a tendency to keep those elements because, well, they're part of the character. It's part of the lore. Right. And it's kind of easy to overlook the context of things. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that that is another way uh, that these that mining the past beyond <laughs> can go wrong. Uh, we get, obviously, some of that in Flash Gordon 
when yeah. we will get to that film in the we'll in the next series. Film. Yeah, and 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 with you know the shadow, there's there is a definitely a touch of Orientalism, you know, with uh, you know with the the mystical Orient, um, and and there's there's a touch of that, uh, and there's certainly a touch of colonialism here in 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 the Phantom. I think in context that that they don't they don't make the films unenjoyable, but there is something that feels out of sync with uh, modern sensibilities uh, in a you way that st- you would not make these movies this way now. You just, no. you, I don't think that, oh, at least I, I would hope that you wouldn't no. um, at the time. I mean, it was nearly 30 years ago. It's, it was a different world. Um, and that's just, they're a product of their time. They are a product of their time again. And, and they can be enjoyed. I think, uh, you know, I, I I liked both of these movies. I have again strong a strong affection for the shadow, um, but you know it, it, they need to I think be understand within a, understood within a context of um, you know these were movies made at a certain time, drawing from a source material which goes back even further, and you know they're not necessarily you know in step with. Uh, you know, kind of modern sensibilities. I think that's a, a place we can we can kind of wrap up. Uh, again, I I, I I highly recommend um, uh, the the shadow. I I just have a, a, an enduring love for that character, um, and uh, and I also think that the Phantom's an entertaining movie. They're both they're both fairly readily available, and I and I encourage you to check them out with the with the proviso of they are kind of from a different era, and they. Uh, and, and they have that, uh, you know, they, they come with that baggage. The Shadow in particular I would recommend because that is a movie that is always swinging for the fences. And it, I yes. love that. The Shadow is, is, is not holding anything back. It is, it is always going full tilt boogie. And, uh, and, and, I, and again, I, I love that character. Um, we hope you've enjoyed listening and we hope you'll tune in next week when we're going to talk about some of the films that came along at the end of this particular era, including the two Joel Schumacher Batman movies, as well as Spawn. There's a storm coming. <laughs> as well as... Hey, Chris, chill out. Do you know what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age! Oh, goodness. Uh, and uh, we're also going to talk about Spawn. We're going to talk about Mystery Men, which is a, 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 a less well-known film that kind of came at the very end of this cycle. And uh, as always, we thank you for listening. Uh, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorgis. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says... Get me another.